Republic of Chad is located right in the center of the upper half of Africa. It's landlocked and surrounded by Libya to the north, Sudan to the east, the Central African Republic and Cameroon to the south, and Niger and Nigeria to the west. The country gets its name from one of its dominant geographic features, a large freshwater lake, Lake Chad, that straddles Chad, Nigeria, Niger, and Cameroon and which is thought to have once been part of a far larger inland sea, often called Megachad. The lake is quite small by historical standards today, though, and in fact seems to have shrunk by as much as 95% from the mid-1960s through the late 1990s. It's regained some of its volume in the years since, which is good because Lake Chad provides water to tens of millions of people in the region, though it's still quite shallow and doesn't encompass nearly as much area as it did even in recent history, due in part to a modern warming and drying out of the local geography. Chad, the country, is thought to have been human-occupied since sometime in the early 7th century BC because of its geographic position along a popular trade route, one that in those early years was fairly pastoral, but which today is largely defined by the Sahara Desert. A series of kingdoms, some of them quite large and powerful, have risen up out of the region, most from around 2000 BC onward. But there are artifacts from smaller settlements before that period as well. Of the larger empires that emerged later, the Sao and the Kanem are probably the best known, in part because of their scale and because of how much evidence of their existence they left for future historians to document. But post-1st century AD, the Sultanate of Bagirmi and the Wadai Empire, which hit their stride in the 16th and 17th centuries respectively, were probably the most influential regional powers in terms of establishing settlements, building dynastic wealth, and defining cultural norms in recent history. Both of these empires, though, never spread out much further than the central trade routes that they controlled, except for periodic raids, mostly to capture slaves from neighboring kingdoms and settlements, and they were mostly sustained and enriched by the trade between the Mali and predecessor empires in the west, and Egypt, Ethiopia, and their predecessor empires to the northeast. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, France was enthusiastically snapping up portions of Africa, alongside their many other conquests around the world, as part of a larger colonial competition with its fellow wealthy European naval powerhouse nations. At various times throughout this period, France controlled part or all of Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Ivory Coast, Benin, Mali, Niger, Senegal, Mauritania, Burkina Faso, Togo, Nigeria, Gambia, Central African Republic, Republic of Congo, Gabon, Cameroon, Sao Tome and Principe, Madagascar, Mauritius, Djibouti, Seychelles, Comoros, and Chad, alongside a handful of islands that they still control as territories today, and areas that have been blended into other areas since. 
Many of these areas were also either created out of whole cloth by their colonial conquerors, or had their names, capitals, borders, and so on, adjusted by those conquerors. All of which is to say that a handful of European countries conquered a whole lot of Africa in a relatively short period of time. But France was particularly enthusiastic in this regard, and Chad was part of that larger setup. It was a component of the larger French imperial foreign administrative region called French Equatorial Africa, and it remained so from around 1905 until 1960 AD, though it was conquered by the French five years before that organizational change was made. Military forces from the, until that point, dominant Wadai Empire and other smaller local groups kept fighting against the incursion until 1920, but most of the fighting was over by around 1906. Compared to many other primarily coastal or natural resource-heavy areas in Africa, Chad was quite low on France's priority list. In terms of modernizing infrastructure and providing resources, education, law and order, and other such benefits to the locals that they technically ruled over. The French also apparently didn't invest much time or effort in unifying local groups, which created a lot of problems that didn't exist previously between those groups, in part as a consequence of all the other problems that tend to come with the enforcement of colonial ideals, organizational methods, and expectations upon folks who are unfamiliar with them and who did not ask for them. This lack of attention and resources for local infrastructure shaped a region that was more or less lawless and run by groups of bandits, and eventually complaints about this state of affairs, mostly from neighboring allied groups or other French governing bodies that suffered as a consequence of this state of lawlessness. The local French administration basically hired regional sultanates to enforce the law on their behalf analogous to a police force paying violent gang leaders to keep things civil on the streets, and with about the results that you would expect from that kind of setup. In the southern part of Chad, there was greater economic success due to a flourishing, cotton-based economy started and propped up and taken advantage of by the French, which led to more investment by the French, more schools, roads, and so on, but it also led to the creation of an artificial, previously non-existent regional ethnic group, the Serra, who were more closely tied to the French, wealthier on average, and more familiar with how to function within a European-dominated society and economy. Thus, they had huge advantages over their northern kin, and a cluster of chiefs from this group also artificially elevated above clans that were previously self-managed and which often lacked that kind of hierarchical system to begin with, came to dominate the region, but also attracted outsized resentment from pretty much everyone else. The situation wasn't helped by the caliber of leadership the French sent to the area, folks who were incapable of functioning at a high enough level to perform in more important parts of the empire were sent to Chad and quite a few leadership and managerial positions were simply never filled, even by the incompetent. In 1940, the lieutenant governor of Chad, Félix Ibui, came out in support of Charles de Gaulle and his free France government in exile. 
while the puppet government that controlled France after Nazi Germany's invasion made claims to the whole of the French Empire. This was a pretty big deal because with the exception of French territories in the Pacific and a collection of territories in what was then called French India, all of the other territories that France had claimed around the world threw in their lot with the Vichy French state, the name often given to that temporary puppet government that ran things for the Nazis until the German government took full control of the area in 1942. The short version of what happened next is that those other French territories, one by one, began to change sides, aligning themselves with the Allied powers, usually after the Allies came to the area and showed their support for these local governments, in opposition to the typically more oppressive Axis military presence. Over time, this allowed the Free France government to build what became known as the French Liberation Army, which contained more than 400,000 soldiers by mid-1944, and which, in addition to fighting off the Axis powers in Africa, also participated in many other major battles throughout World War II. The support of Eboy and Chad at the beginning, though, when just about everyone else was going along with the Nazis, was a big deal for the French government. It helped build a post-war bond between the two nations, and gained the area overseas territory status, along with the right to elect representatives to the French National Assembly. Chad was granted independence in August of 1960, and two years later, the country's first leader, Francois Tambobaye, banned opposition parties and set up an autocratic governing system with himself at the helm. This autocratic government, in addition to mismanaging pretty much everything, also sparked ethnic tensions in the region. Tambobaye was a member of that artificially created French-favored Serra group, and he favored others who were from the same. And this led to a civil war that culminated with Tambobaye being overthrown and then killed in 1975. And four years later, in 1979, an opposition faction finally took the capital, and a scramble for who would run things ensued, which led to more infighting and the collapse of the country's government. This collapse also more or less booted the remaining bits of French control from the country, which gave neighboring Libya a chance to step in and attempt to fill the power vacuum. This didn't go terribly well, though, as Libya's involvement in the ongoing civil war allowed a politician named Hissen Habre, who was set up to be the next president of the country in 1982, at the behest of and with the backing of France and the United States, it allowed him to rally the locals against the Libyans, booting them out and gaining himself enough power to set up his own authoritarian government. Habre ruled through violence and intimidation, was massively corrupt, and is thought to have killed thousands of people using the power of the state to defend and reinforce his seat of power. He also, like his predecessor, favored his own ethnic group and harshly discriminated against all the others. One of Chad's generals, Idris Debi, overthrew Habre in 1990, and Habre was later charged with war crimes, human rights abuses, rape, sexual slavery, and ordering the killing of 40,000 people 
while in power. He was sentenced to life in prison, where he remains as of the day I'm recording this. What I'd like to talk about today, though, is Idris Deby, his rule, the nature of his recent death, and what might come next for the Republic of Chad. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Economist, and it's entitled, Chad's Strongman President, Idris Deby, is Killed by Rebels. Deby is the former general who overthrew the previous authoritarian president of Chad, Hissin Habre, in 1990, and who has been the president of the country himself ever since. In the 30 years since that overthrow, he's survived multiple assassination and coup attempts and staved off many rebellions and other sorts of unrest throughout the country, though some of that unrest continued up until the day he died, and I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. During his tenure in 2000, oil reserves in the southern Doba region of Chad were tapped, and a deal was made with the World Bank that helped fund that tapping, but only 12.5% of the profits from those reserves were sent to the Chadian government. The rest was sent overseas to be monitored by outside organizations to ensure that the funds were spent on public services and infrastructure, rather than corrupt sorts of things like bribes and private wars, and to line the president and his allies' pockets. That was one of the conditions put into place by the World Bank for their financial support of this project. Debbie pushed for more of that money to go directly to himself and his government in 2006, and he received some concessions as a consequence of that. But the World Bank canceled a planned oil pipeline it was meant to fund in the country when it became clear that Debbie had failed to allocate funds from that initial bout of oil wealth in ways that they considered to be appropriate. He was using those oil revenues to consolidate his own power, rather than for schools, hospitals, and roads, as was agreed. Debbie's government has played a role in peacekeeping efforts in nearby countries over the years. But Chad, under his governance, has also been at the top of the world's most corrupt governments list multiple times, and a 2012 anti-corruption effort called Operation Cobra which recovered tens of millions of dollars in embezzled government funds, was reportedly used by Debbie to punish his enemies and reward his allies, further perpetuating the system of patronage that he'd already established. In 2017, the United States Justice Department alleged that Debbie took a $2 million bribe from China to give them the chance to procure oil rights in Chad without facing international competition. And in 2021, leading up to the next presidential election, most of Debbie's opponents withdrew after being harassed and threatened by the government. One of his opponents was pursued by national security forces, facing arrest for not withdrawing. Three to five members of that opponent's family were killed by the government while pursuing him, that number dependent on whether you believe his numbers or the government's numbers, and Debbie won his sixth term in office, 
after saying in 2016 that he would eventually reinstate presidential term limits because systems in which power cannot change hands are not ideal. But apparently 2021 was not yet the time for such a change. In 2018, he pushed through a new constitution that would allow him to stay in power until 2033, and he seemed to be intent on making full use of that additional allotted time. After winning the 2021 election with 79.31% of the votes, and again, most opposition and their supporters were either kicked out or boycotted this election, Debbie, a former general, went to visit Chadian soldiers in the northern part of the country who were engaged in active combat with members of the Front for Chance and Concord in Chad, which in French is abbreviated as F-A-C-T. During that visit, according to government spokespeople, Debbie was injured and flown back to the capital, where he died. The announcement of his death came mere hours after the announcement of his re-election, which made the revelation, when announced on local television, a bit of a shock for those who were watching. It was announced in that same broadcast that Debbie's son, a 37-year-old four-star general named Mahamat Debbie, would serve as interim president with the help of a transitional military council, which will reportedly run the country for 18 months, during which time there will be a nightly 6 p.m. curfew. Despite his many atrocities and abuses, the late President Debbie was seen by many Western governments as an ally because his enemies, groups like Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS-linked groups in the region, were also the enemies of those Western nations. And if he was a dictator in all but name, well, a lot of allies of convenience for democratic nations have been exactly that throughout history. And though no power handover has ever occurred as a result of an election in Chad, going through the song and dance gestures of such elections in autocratic states gives democratic allies the opportunity to look the other way and pretend that these elections are the real thing when it's convenient to do so. That northern rebel group, FACT, was fighting to oust the elder Debbie, and his death has been met with happiness and increased resolve by the group. They claim responsibility for killing him, as of the day I'm recording this, but we don't have any specifics about that yet, and we might never know for certain what happened beyond the polish the current government is putting on the whole affair. That lack of clarity has, in some circles, increased the level of suspicion that what seems on its face to have been a battlefield-related death could have actually been a coup by the military and or Debbie's son, dressed up to look like a tragedy, and then claimed by his enemies for the status that such a kill would grant them. Whatever the reality of this death, though, Chad's existing military structure seems capable of holding itself up for at least a while, though the degree to which they will be capable of governing and the degree to which the younger, Debbie, will try to assert his own authority, separate from theirs, will likely decide quite a lot about the longevity of this new system, alongside whether or not FACT continues to see success in their efforts in the northern part of the country, and whether or not other groups, which have been out to dethrone the elder Debbie for most of his tenure, will use this opportunity to gang up and launch a coup or a rebellion of their own. Internationally, most of the world 
seems to be maintaining a safe distance from any potential eruptions that might emerge as a consequence of this death, while also making it clear that as long as whomever steps in continues to play ball, investing in a solid regional military force, helping out with counterterrorism efforts in the area, and continuing on with the Potemkin democratic displays, they'll be okay with that. And this is especially true of France, whose National Assembly has said that they support the military's proposed transition plan, and whose president, Emmanuel Macron, attended Debbie's funeral. But France is not alone in this. Other nations that have commented on the issue have struck a similar chord. For their part, as of the day I'm recording this, the FACT has crossed into Chad from southern Libya and has said that they are not far from the capital, which they intend to capture. Demonstrators in the capital have been clashing with police since February over Debbie's decision to run again, and Chad recently sent 1,200 soldiers to fight jihadist terrorist groups in nearby countries. It's thought that those soldiers could be brought back to the capital region to help defend it against both local rebellion and the FACT coming in from the north. But such a move would likely be very unpopular with France, which has its own soldiers in the region, and which is reportedly relying on those Chadian soldiers to hold territory while they do their thing elsewhere. It's possible that the capital could be taken before this episode even goes live, or that something could happen to the FACT group before they get there. A strike from Chad's military government, aid from another regional power, or even support from an overseas government like France that wants to keep things stable, or at the very least wants to maintain a predictable status quo. In the meantime, local groups who have wanted to dethrone the previous and perhaps ongoing administration will likely be considering whether this is the moment to strike, either through whatever official legal channels remain, or via some other means. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Behemoth, A History of the Factory, and The Making of the Modern World by Joshua Freeman. This book goes very deep on the subject of the factory and the systems and technologies that allowed it to be built, but also the surprisingly central role that it plays to a great many philosophies, from things like capitalism to things like Marxism and aspects of modern communism as well. Some of these ideologies, especially as they relate to the exchange of value, but also to the role of workers and the position of human beings within society, came about in their modern iteration as a consequence, or at least in the same cultural moment, as the emergence and increasing dominance of factory setups for doing work that was previously done in other ways. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Behemoth by Joshua Freeman. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, at brainlenses.com. And you can find my daily news summary-centered newsletter 
One Sentence News at onesentencenews.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.